Well, you sound really good this morning, church. I appreciate you singing, and that is a new song. We were talking about that in the first service, that that is a new song that we are introducing. And I've been battling a sinus congestion thing for three weeks, and one of the biggest frustrations about that has been that I haven't been able to sing like I normally do because I'm afraid that if I sing... I'm going to strain my vocal cords and not be able to preach two services. And so I'm just kind of sitting there not singing, and, and it's very hard. But what a beautiful, beautiful song. I told the first service as I was sitting there this morning and, and listening to you sing as a church and thinking about the truths of that song, one of, the, one of the things that the Lord kind of impressed upon my heart was He, he really just kind of took me to my brothers and sisters in Christ in Uganda. And for those of you who are guests with us today, first of all, thank you for being here. If you're a guest, I know several of you are here for the first time or you've been visiting over the last few weeks, and we want to thank you for being here. Um, but uh, I'm involved in a ministry that, that is, works in Central Africa in Uganda, uh, in the northern part of Uganda, and I spoke about that a little bit in our worship service last week. <clears throat> but... Uh, uh, there in Uganda, we have, a, we have a, a facility and a couple of churches, and I stay in touch. Matter of fact, I've, I've got a message on my phone this morning from a pastor who's a South Sudanese pastor in one of the refugee camps there in northern Uganda, and was in contact this week with some of our missionaries through Facebook. And uh, ever since April, um, the uh, Ugandan government has banned any large group gatherings, any gatherings over a certain size, which the net effect of that means that none of the local churches in Uganda have been able to meet since April, including both of our churches there in Gulu and out in uh, Kenine. Um, they have not been able to gather together and congregate as a church, and they don't have the benefit of the technology that we have. Uh, you know, we, we already had in place some cameras and a, a YouTube account, and so it was it was uh, not too hard for us to pivot to a live stream uh, only type option for a few weeks and then to start to gather people back slowly. It was not hard for us to do that, but, but our brothers and sisters in Africa don't have that technology. They don't have that camera. Many of them in the, in the people that we work with live in mud homes with no electricity, and so they, they can't even broadcast these, but... Uh, God has been faithful and the church is still growing and they're still finding ways to disciple the believers there. But, you know, I'm thinking about me feeling sorry for myself because my voice is a little strained and I can't sing a song. And I've got brothers and sisters in Christ who haven't been able to sing with the church family for four months. Uh, it breaks my heart. So let's continue to pray for those uh, brothers and sisters around the world who don't have it quite like we do today. Um, and with that in mind, we are talking about the subject of prayer this morning from Colossians chapter 1. The title of today's message is Unceasing Prayer for Spiritual Maturation. And we're looking at verses 9 through 14 of Colossians chapter 1. We're in week 3 of a journey through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And today's message is really part 2 of a message that I began last week as we started examining the opening verses of uh, Paul's letter in verses 3 through 14. Last week we looked at verses 3 through 8 and we talked about how Paul expresses gratitude to God for the reports that he has received of the way that the gospel is bearing fruit in the lives of the believers there in the church in Colossae. 
He had not founded that church. He didn't have a direct relationship with the believers in Colossae. His, his relationship was by extension through a man named Epaphras who we believe founded that church. And Epaphras comes to see Paul while he's in prison in Rome to bring him a report about how the church is doing. And there are some discouraging, disturbing uh, teachings that are starting to infiltrate the church that we're going to get to in a few weeks. But he starts off by by thanking God and praising God and, and, and encouraging the believers in the church because of the, the amount of, of harvest of gospel fruit that has already taken place in just a short amount of time. As I said last week, we need to remember when Paul writes this letter, this church has not been there very long. It's probably been there 10 years or less. And yet in 10 years, there are just amazing things that are happening. Lives are changing and people are becoming conformed to the image of Christ. And so Paul expresses gratitude for that. And then in verses 9 through 14, he gets into a specific prayer that he has been praying regularly for the believers there in the church. And that makes the content of what we're going to look at in today's message beginning in verse 9. So if you would read it with me. Paul says, in light of the gratitude that he feels, he says, And so, from the day we heard, that means hearing from Epaphras, we have not ceased to pray for you, thus the unceasing prayer, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Last week we talked about how Paul's opening comments in the first 14 verses of Colossians reminds us of the vital importance of intercessory prayer in the lives of Christians and in the lives of the church. And we talked about the fact that as the church, we should be regularly interceding before the Heavenly Father for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, both within the local church that we attend as well as around the world. That's why I feel compelled this morning to say continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Uganda as they struggle through the effects of this in their country. You see, prayer is the lifeblood of our Christian lives. And as such, we, we shouldn't just pray to God to better our circumstances. We shouldn't just use prayer as an opportunity to, 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 to get more from God or, or to better whatever's going on in our life. But we should also be praying regularly as part of our prayer life for our personal spiritual growth as well as the spiritual growth and salvation of other people. This is what intercessory prayer is. It's praying for others and praying specifically for God to move in their life in specific ways. Which brings us back to an important point that we started last week, which is how does prayer operate in your life? How would you evaluate your prayer life? Most of us, most Christians I meet would say, I believe in prayer. I just don't, I probably don't pray as much as I would like to. I'm probably not as disciplined as I would like to be. I don't pray with as much regularity as I would like to see. I allow, you know, other things to take the place of prayer in my life. Some believers would say, I struggle with knowing what to pray. Sometimes I feel like when I pray, uh, I, don't, I know that God is listening, but it feels like God is distant. 
Others are very disciplined and structured in their prayer lives and have learned what it's like to communicate regularly with God. So, so how would you evaluate your prayer life and how often do you pray for yourself and for others? And when you pray, what specifically do you pray for? What, what makes up the content of your prayers? Most of the time in the church, the vast majority of the content of the prayers in the local church uh, context are usually for people who are sick and are in need of some sort of healing or relief or recovery. That focus, that's a huge focus, and that's a form of intercessory prayer. But what about in your life? When you pray, what do you pray for? How do you pray specifically? What is the functional role of prayer in your life? And is prayer a sporadic activity for you? Or is it a regular uh, discipline that you have learned to pursue? Is prayer something that operates generically in your life? And what I mean by that is that prayer is something that you believe is important, but not something you actually engage in regularly. That's, that's, that's kind of a generic uh, operational form of prayer. Ian Bounds, who was one of the uh, greatest prayers in the church and one of the greatest writers on prayer, has written several things. I've used these quotes before, but I would remind you of them. Ian e. Bounds said, first of all, that prayer is our most formidable weapon, the thing which makes all else we do efficient. There is nothing we do in life that creates any sense of spiritual efficiency apart from our intercessory prayer life with the Lord. Ian Bounds also wrote, What the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. And Bounds continues and says, The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans. He anoints men, and he does specifically men of prayer. Prayer, And so when we think about prayer and we think about unceasing prayer for spiritual maturation as we read Paul's words here and we think about how they apply to our life, we need to sit and evaluate what, what does our prayer life look like and how does prayer function in our life? And let me say this from the outset that one of the things that, that God woke me up to many years ago as a follower of Jesus is that the purpose of prayer is not to get more from God. The purpose of prayer is to become more intimate and familiar with God. The purpose of prayer is not because we do know that God is a good Father who loves to give good gifts to His children, as Jesus said. We do know that we have a God who says, Ask and so that you may receive, seek, knock. We do know that James says, You have not because you ask not. We do know that God fully welcomes us presenting our request to Him. Philippians chapter 4 says that. But the purpose of prayer is not to get more from God. The purpose of prayer is to get more of God. The purpose of prayer is to become more intimate and familiar with Him so that as we grow in our Christian maturity and in our prayer life, the things we pray for more fall in line with the things that we know God wants in our life. And you see what separates the message of Christianity apart from every other religious system and message out there is that our God that we pray to is not inviting us into an empty ritualistic practice of prayer. Our God is inviting us into a restored relationship with Him. 
And what I mean by that is that every religious system has some form of prayer. And they all believe that they pray to a God, but, but in many places, the God that they pray to is, is an, an, un, an impersonal deity. He's not, a, he's not a God who can be approached. He's a God who is extremely distant, or he's, a, he's an idol, a stone idol that they pray to, or a generic God up in heaven. And, and he, he, we, we go to that God and we talk to him and we pray to him, but he's not a personal person that we can have a relationship with. And yet, in the Christian theology, we understand that our God is not an impersonal deity. He is a personal God. And our God does not in, invite us into prayer as an empty ritualistic practice but instead, he invites us to pray as a product of our restoration. God's saving activity in our life is about reconciling a broken relationship that was caused by our sinful rebellion. And the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ took upon himself all of the weight and the cost of our rebellion so that it no longer creates separation between us and God. And remembering that we have been reconciled to Him, remembering that we have a reconciled and restored relationship is critical to the way that we practice prayer. You see, the foundation for any healthy relationship is intimacy and communication. You see, we shouldn't pray just because we feel obligated to do so. You, if, you, if you pray out of obligation, that's a good place to start, but it's not a good place to stay. You see, if I got up every morning and I said, good morning, I love you to my wife, simply because I was obligated to do so, that's not going to be something that she receives in a very friendly way. Good morning, I love you. Give me my coffee, leave me alone. You know, that's, that's not intimacy. That's not relationship. That's, that's me giving her a good morning out of obligation, but not because I wish a good morning on her. And likewise, prayer is not about presenting a wish list to God of the things that we would like to have every day. So if my children only communicate with me because they want me to do something or they want me to give something to them, then that reveals how they see me. And likewise, if, if the only time we go to pray is when we need something from God, we want God to do something for us, then it, 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 it reveals how we see Him and it reveals that we're not really operating from a position of intimacy and and communication. Prayer is about remembering each and every day that we have been restored in right relationship to the sovereign God of the universe and that our God stands ready each and every morning to hear from us and to move in our lives for His good, for our good and for His glory. Prayer is about remembering every day you have the opportunity to connect in communication with the God who rules every atom in the universe and every morning He waits to hear you. And this not only changes the attitude of our prayer, but it changes the content of what we pray for. And this is why I love studying Paul's prayers in the New Testament because in almost every letter that Paul writes, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in that church specific things that he has prayed for or is praying for them. And the same is true here in Colossians chapter 1. And in these, these five verses, we see 
not only a model for intercessory prayer, but we also see a guide for what we can pray for ourselves and others. We, we see in Paul's prayer here some specific things that you and I can pray that would, that would be in alignment with the Word of God and the things that Paul prays for the believers there. And so I want us to, to look at what I would call four transformational prayers that you can pray today for yourself and you can pray for other people in your life. Four things that you and I can begin to implement into our prayer life, four prayers that we can implement that would, that would help transform the way that we communicate with God. <coughs> the first of those prayers is this, Lord, increase my spiritual wisdom and knowledge of your will. Lord, today, would you increase my spiritual wisdom and would you increase the knowledge of your will in my life? Verse 9, Paul says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then he gets into the content of that prayer, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You can pray that for yourself. You can pray that for others. God, would you fill me with the knowledge of your will and would you give me spiritual wisdom and understand what you want me to do in life? Paul prays for the believers in the Colossae not just to know the will of God, but to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. There's a difference between knowing God wants some things from you in life and being filled in your life with the knowledge of who God is and what God desires. And this word filled in the Greek is the word plerao, and it's an interesting word because it means to be completely filled or to be totally controlled. So to help illustrate that, um, when I'm out doing yard work, when I'm out cutting the grass and doing weed eating and all that kind of stuff, especially on August months, August days, um, I need a class of cold water. I get, I get one of the, the biggest stainless steel you know, cups that we've got, and I fill that cup with ice and then fill it with water. And I want that cup to be plerao with cold ice water. You know what I'm talking about? I don't just want a small glass. If I, like that one day I went in and I told Josh, I said, I said, Dad's thirsty. Go get me some ice water. And he, he comes out with a plastic cup that's about this full of water. And that didn't do me any good. And I had to explain to him, let me, let me explain to you what plerao means, son. And I had to go show him that fill this thing up with ice and fill it up with water because I need plerao water. I need to be completely filled with ice cold water in that moment. Likewise, when I'm flying on an airplane, I want the pilot in the front of the plane to have total control of the plane. And I want him to be filled with the knowledge of airplane aviation, right? I want him to be totally controlled by the knowledge of how to fly a plane. That's plerao, total control. And Paul says that you and I need to be filled, we need to be completely filled, totally controlled by the knowledge of God's will. We should know who God is and what God wants from us, what God wants in this world. But too often in the church, we treat God's will like the plot line of an Agatha Christie mystery novel. 
It's a hidden secret that only a few people are smart enough to unlock. But the Bible tells us that God's will is something vastly different from that. You see, God's will is not a mystery that God seeks you to unfold. God's will is a pathway that He desires for you to pursue. And in order to pursue God's will, you must make it a priority in your life and you must seek to understand God and His purposes better. This is why Paul says we need to pray for, to be filled with the knowledge of His will. We need to not only know that God wants some things in the world, but we need to be completely consumed by who God is and what God wants from us in this world and what God wants to see. And so successfully following God's will is tied to increasing our knowledge of Him. When Paul speaks of increasing our knowledge, he's not just talking about increasing our biblical facts. He's not just talking about acquiring more biblical trivia, like knowing uh, what king did this in the Bible or knowing uh, what king did that or knowing what Moses did here. That's not just acquiring biblical facts. It's, it's understanding that it's more than head knowledge about God, but experiential knowledge. The word knowledge in the Greek is a compound word called epigenosis. And the word gnosis is a deep personal knowledge that comes from experience. And it means that as you and I experience God on a deeper, more personal level, we will know Him, epigenosis, and we will know what He is like and we will know what He desires for us. So if God wants us to be completely filled with the knowledge of His will, where does that come from? Well, it comes from God's Word. It comes from repeatedly reading, understanding, and applying God's Word in our life. Philippians chapter 1, Paul said, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. He wants us to acquire biblical knowledge and discernment. Ephesians chapter 1 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the epigenosis of Him, the experience of knowing Him on a deeper level. The Bible also warns us of the danger of a lack of knowledge in Hosea chapter 4 when it says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. God wants us to know more of Him. And Paul says that the knowledge of God's will, knowing what God wants, comes as we increase in spiritual wisdom and understanding. These three components are critical in the process of spiritual growth. What God wants for you and me is knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Knowledge is acquiring more information about God, His purposes, and His ways. Understanding is being able to fit the information together like the pieces of a puzzle and to see how they fit in our lives. That's what understanding is. I, I know these things. The Bible has told me these things and I know them, but now I'm beginning to see, understand how they fit into, into how I parent and how I work and, and how I carry myself out in public and the choices that I make. And wisdom is knowing how to rightly apply the knowledge that we attain. It's how we put the principles of God in action in our lives. 
And when we opened the book of Colossians a few weeks ago, we told you that one of the four key themes of the book of Colossians is that of wisdom, that God desires for us to have revelatory wisdom from Him more than human wisdom and understanding. And so Paul says that a key component of our prayer life should be praying for more spiritual wisdom and understanding and knowledge of God for ourselves and others. And yet, too often... Churches are filled with infantile Christians, people who have faith in God but have stopped advancing in spiritual growth because they've either never properly been discipled or they've stopped acquiring knowledge of God and spiritual wisdom from Him in their lives. They affirm belief in God, but they regularly practice things that are contrary to God's Word. They measure the quality of their life by the wrong metrics, and as a result... There are many people in the church who function as practical atheists. And what I mean by that is a practical atheist is someone who says they believe in God, but they live their life as if he really didn't exist. And this comes from a lack of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So we pray every morning, God, increase my spiritual wisdom and knowledge of your will today. But secondly... A second prayer that Paul prays that we could pray is this. Lord, enable me to live a spiritually fruitful life today. Lord, enable me to live a spiritually fruitful life. Paul says that in verse 10, as we, as we are filled with the knowledge of His will, that we increase in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10 says, so as or so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, continuing to acquire more knowledge of Him. Paul says that one of the outcomes of increasing in spiritual wisdom is that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is a, it's an interesting phrase. It's talking about the, an improvement in the daily quality of our lives in such a way that we carry the way we carry ourselves and the choices that we make speak of the goodness of our Savior. Let me say that again. When Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, he's talking about improving the quality of our life in such a way that how we carry ourselves and the choices that we make speak about the goodness of our God. They talk about the worthiness of of our Lord. The word walk in the New Testament is a, is a phrase that's talking about the everyday pattern and conduct of your life. It's the daily trajectory, including your unconscious mannerisms and your conscious choices. And as Christians, we should want the quality of our lives to be such that every day the way that we live speaks of the greatness and the goodness of our Savior Jesus Christ. We remind, we remind ourselves that we have been saved by Him at a great personal cost. And because of that, He alone is worthy of our best every day. And we need to walk every single day in a way that is worthy, that brings Him worth and honor. Paul continues to say that as we walk worthy, that, that we would be fully pleasing to Him. What does that mean? It means our lives should be lived to bring God's pleasure. A friend of mine once wrote, we need to live for the sound of God's applause. We need, to, we need to live our lives in such a way that we know that God is pleased. 
with the way that we are living. But we need to remember that living for God's pleasure does not mean that God's ultimate approval of us is conditional upon the perfection of our lives and our choices. We talk about living for the pleasure of God and the approval of God. We're not talking about living our life in such a way that, that, that our choices are the grounds of God's approval over us. God's approval over us is grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. Our, our approval has already been sealed because we have been, we have been bought with the price and we have placed our faith and trust in Him. We've been born again and so God is already approving of us because when He looks at us, He sees Christ in us. So we don't live for God's pleasure in such a way that we are living for, we're trying to merit His approval. Instead, living for God's pleasure means that because we have been saved, bringing Him pleasure is the driving force in our life. That's what it means to live for God's approval. Because we have been saved, because, because we cannot merit God's approval by the way that we live, that's why we need a Savior. But now that we have been saved, Bringing him pleasure becomes a driving force in our life. And then Paul returns to the metaphor of a fruitful garden that he used in verse 6. Again, when he says that we are to bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of him. You see, he wants to see the Christians in Colossae be a bountiful garden of gospel fruit for the Lord. And that we do so by increasing our knowledge of him that like newborn babes, Peter said, we are to long for the pure milk of the word so that we may grow in respect to salvation. It means that we have a deeper love for his word and a deeper commitment to conform our lives to God's word in obedience. The more consistently we walk with God in our daily lives, the deeper will be our knowledge of him, his purposes, and his ways. And the greater will be our desire to see those choices in our lives and in the lives of others. And so we pray, Lord, enable me today to live a spiritually fruitful life. May I live in such a way that brings you pleasure. And may I be a, a beautiful garden increasing in spiritual fruit to those around me. But the third thing that we pray is, Lord, give me supernatural strength and power to endure. Lord, today would you give me supernatural strength and power to endure. Verse 11 says, Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul continues his prayer for the believers in Colossae by praying that they would continue to endure and that God would give them strength, supernatural strength, because his desire is that for all the believers in the church at Colossae to remain true to the Lord until the end. Now, one of the most common expressions of the Christian life in the Bible is that of a race. It was a very familiar metaphor in first century time because first century Rome was filled with athletic competitions and specifically races. And Paul likes to borrow from the imagery of, of a race to show us what the Christian life is about. But Paul shows us in the Christian life that the goal of the Christian life is not to finish first. The goal of the Christian life is to finish and finish well. That we are to run the race in such a way that we finish and we finish well. Now, I'm not a person who is in very good athletic shape right now. And, and I know that if someone came to me tomorrow and said, hey, we want you to go and 
and run this uh, marathon next week, I would not be able to finish that race. And I certainly would not be able to finish it well. But Paul says over and over and over again that we are to finish the race. And first, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have stayed true to the end. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run that you may obtain it. Run in such a way that you will finish and finish well, don't run aimlessly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You are in the race, so run it with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We need to remind ourselves that the Christian life is not a hundred yard sprint, it's a marathon. And in a race, enduring, endurance is critical. Endurance means that we push through the pain and the discomfort caused by the circumstances around us because we know that we haven't crossed the finish line yet. Obedience and faithfulness and pleasing Christ to the end are the goals of our lives, not comfort and convenience. And so we need endurance. And too many people in the church start strong but fade fast because they forget that the race that we are in is going to bring challenges and hurdles and obstacles. There will be times when our faith will be weak. There will be times when the challenges of the race will be hard. And there will be times when others who were running with us will fall or stop running altogether and give up. Paul says, don't let that be the case for you. I'm praying that God will give you supernatural strength, that God will strengthen you with power according to His glorious might so that you will endure to the end with patience. Now the supernatural strength that Paul is praying for is simply the power of the Spirit of God working inside of us to do in and through us what we cannot do in our own feeble personal strength and power. Paul says that the same Spirit which raised Jesus from the dead resides in each and every one of us. He indwells every single follower of Jesus Christ. And that that Spirit can empower you to endure and be faithful even on those days when being a follower of Jesus is difficult. How many of you remember the TV show from the 70s, The Incredible Hulk? Anybody remember that? It was one of my favorite TV shows when I was a kid. And... You know, that storyline's different than the Marvel storyline that they put in the movies and the TV version of The Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno and, 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 and Dr. Bruce Banner. In the TV show, uh, Dr. Bruce Banner sets himself on a quest to find the secret to supernatural strength because his wife has died in a car accident and he couldn't do something to save her. He was, he was, he was unable in his strength to rescue her. And so he has seen these reports of people who were, who were given a supernatural strength in a difficult circumstance, and he believes that he can tap into that strength, and in doing so, he has this tragic miscalculation where he eventually becomes the Incredible Hulk. I remember another TV show that was popular during the 70s and early 80s, and it was a TV show called That's Incredible. Any of you remember that? 
That's Incredible was, was one of my favorite shows because it was kind of like Ripley's Believe It or Not. It was all these stories that just sounded too good to be true. And, and they would tell from time to time on That's Incredible, they would tell the story of someone who was given supernatural strength in a moment, like a, a mom whose car had a wreck and flipped over and their child was was trapped in the car and the mom was given the ability to rip the door off the hinges, something that she would not have been able to do or to lift the car up so that the child could get out. And Paul's not talking about that kind of supernatural strength, but instead he's talking about tapping into a spiritual resource that is available in the life of every believer because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And Paul reminds us that it's the Spirit that can give endurance to us on our weekdays. It's the Spirit that can empower us to share the gospel with others when we feel weak and inadequate and don't know what to say. It's the Spirit that can enable us to reject the allurement and the enticement of sin when we feel like giving in to temptation. God's desire for all of us as followers of Jesus is to patiently endure the hardships of the Christian race and not give up. To run with purpose and faithfulness on those days when it would be easier to give up and stop. And so Paul says that he is praying for us and we need to pray for ourselves and others. Lord, give me supernatural strength. Give me the strength of your spirit and the power to endure and run faithfully today. Which brings us to the fourth and final prayer, and that is simply this. Lord, give me a grateful heart for your saving ways. Lord, give me a grateful heart for your saving ways. Verse 12, Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The final area that Paul says for you and me to pray is to pray for joyful and grateful hearts. This phrase, with joy, at the end of verse uh, 11, this phrase could, could refer both to the endurance that we endure with joy or it can refer forward to the quality of being thankful and giving gratitude. And I think contextually that's where it fits best is really with verse 12 and not verse 11. And what Paul is saying is that that we need to be people who endure with patience and express joy and thanksgiving to God for what He has done in our lives. And yet, how many church members do you meet that seem to be lacking a sense of joy and gratitude in their lives? These people may be saved, but you can't tell it from their attitude sometimes. And they may be running the Christian race, but they aren't liking it very much and they want you and everyone else to know about it. Paul says that shouldn't be the case for us. We should joyfully give thanks to God. He reminds us in verses 12 through 14 of the amazing glory of our salvation that has put us in the Christian race to begin with. And he shares the reality of this salvation using several important phrases. The first of those is he says that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. The phrase qualified means that now we meet the conditions to be heirs of a great future inheritance. But in our own personal selves, we were disqualified. To be qualified now means that at one time we were not qualified. We didn't meet the qualifications. 
We lacked the spiritual qualifications necessary for eternal life because of our sin and our rebellion against God. Our sins disqualified us from the Christian race, but the Lord Jesus in His blood has restored our qualifications because He paid the price for our sinful choices which disqualified us. He has qualified us to share in a glorious inheritance. But secondly, He says God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His Son. This phrase of deliverance brings up the picture of a rescue operation. Reminds me of the television show Seal Team. If any of you have seen Seal Team where where these guys go in and and they go into an impossible situation in order usually to rescue somebody. It's a powerful picture that he uses because our pursuit of sin in our own personal life has resulted in us being taken hostage and into enemy territory by the forces of darkness. We began to pursue sin not knowing that one day we would cross enemy lines and be hostage to sin and its consequences. And yet God has sent His Son into enemy territory to defeat the enemy and bring us back into His perfect kingdom. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And the third picture is the picture of redemption, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The the picture of redemption means to buy someone back from slavery. Our pursuit of sin in life enslaves us to sin as our master. And you see, sin doesn't bring freedom, it brings chains and it brings bondage. And our sin has amassed a massive spiritual debt of which we cannot pay. And as a result, sin stands over us as our master. And yet, the Bible tells us that Jesus takes on the price of our sin debt upon himself and purchases us back from sin and redeems us to himself. And not only that, We now owe Him that debt, but He forgives us of that spiritual debt that we owe to Him. In Him we have redemption. We have been bought back from enslavement. We have been redeemed and forgiven. This is the power of the gospel. And this is why preaching the gospel to yourself every day is critically important in the Christian life. Because just like Paul says here, we need to remind ourselves daily that we are now qualified where once we were disqualified from the race. We need to remind ourselves that that a divine rescue operation has been accomplished for us and that we are no longer citizens of the kingdom of darkness, but we are citizens of the kingdom of the Son of God. We need to be reminded that our Savior has bought us back at a deep price. And as we ground ourselves in these truths, as we understand that where we were once disqualified, we are now qualified. Where we were once in drastic trouble, we have been rescued. And where once we were enslaved, but now we have been redeemed. As we remind ourselves of these things, then what is the rightful response of that? Joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now, we will look a little bit deeper next week at the things that Jesus has done in our salvation. Jesus is about to set the the table for us on the truth that we saw a few weeks ago, that because Jesus is supreme, Jesus is just better. And He's going to do so by reminding us all of the things that Christ has accomplished for us in salvation. We're going to look at that next week. But before we do, we, we want to remind ourselves today that we can, just like Paul, we can pray these four prayers for us 
and for others, and it will absolutely transform the trajectory of our Christian lives. So may we pray with the Apostle Paul these things. Lord, increase our spiritual wisdom and knowledge of your will today. Lord, enable us to live spiritually fruitful lives today. Lord, empower us with supernatural strength and empower to endure and run the race today. Lord, give us grateful hearts for your saving ways today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that not only have you made a way for us to come to you and to communicate with you, not only have you given us an incredibly gracious gift in the gift of prayer, but God, we, you've given us a model for how to pray. You've, you've shown us in your word things that we can pray for, that God, that we can come to you and we can pray with boldness and confidence and we can ask for you to increase our spiritual wisdom and knowledge of your will to help us to know more about who you are and what you are doing and what you desire of us. And God, give us more wisdom to walk in a manner worthy of you to enable us to live spiritually fruitful lives today. God, would you empower us with supernatural strength, with the strength that can come from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in us so that we can endure the race that you've set before us. And God, would you give us grateful hearts today for your salvation and for what you have done to save and redeem us. And Father, I know that there are people that are either in this room this morning or some who may be watching us online who can't pray these prayers today because they haven't been delivered from the domain of darkness. They, they still stand in the midst of their sin. They've never repented of their sin and trusted in you. They, they are still in bondage to sin and its choices. Father, I pray that today for those who who have never been saved, who've never truly trusted in you for salvation. Father, that you would speak to their heart, that you would reveal to them their need for Christ, that you would give them the faith to believe, that you would give them the courage to, to trust and to repent of their sin and to trust in you. Maybe you're in this room today and are watching online and you need to know more about how to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been working in your life today to convict you and and if so, then maybe you can just pray today, God, would you save me? Would you change me? Would you make me a new person? If you need to talk to somebody about the Lord Jesus, there's going to be a, a telephone number on the screen. There's going to be a, an email that you can email me and let me know if, if you'd like to know more about knowing the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And if you're in this room today and you need to talk to somebody, I'll be hanging around afterwards and we'll be glad to talk to you as well. Father God, we thank you for your word and the power of your word. God, may it be our guide today and always. And thank you for allowing us to come and be in church today. God, we lift up all these things to you and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.